0: Aloha, mingalaba, buenos dias a todos, bonjour, jambo, as alaikum. Many people often ask me, what does the pulse stand for in World Pulse? For me, it absolutely symbolizes this electric pulse of women's voices rising across the earth, and I'm so feeling this today, What I want you to know about me, to be absolutely straight-up, is that with every cell of my body, I believe that the creative human potential of women and girls is the greatest untapped resource on Earth. And I believe that we have the potential right now to use the power of media and communications technology to truly connect and truly unleash this potential. And the implications for the environmental movement are vast, as we have the power to activate legions of guardians and champions for the earth that are right now unseen. So I'd love to tell you a little bit about my journey building World Pulse from a vision at a a very young age. But perhaps most importantly, I, even though I grew up so paralyzingly shy, somehow uh, connecting to this network of women around the world has helped me find my own voice. And when I tap really deeply into my own voice, this is what I have to say, that it is absolutely urgent the task for us now, at the time when there's no nation on Earth where women have equal voice, that we apply all of our human power to develop the architecture, the communications infrastructure that can channel the wisdom of those women that are living in the midst of some of our Earth's greatest challenges, so that their voices can reach the public, so that we can hear their needs in their own words, that we can hear Uh, their agenda in their own words. Over the last few years, I guess, in many ways, I felt like I am a bit of a mad scientist tinkering around in a media laboratory with my team and uh, figuring out how do we create a unique media design to do just this. We started with a print magazine. And then, as the communication revolution started to build and we were aware of Web 2.0, we developed this global, interactive global women's newswire called Pulsewire, where uh, a woman anywhere in the world who uh, may just have access to a cell phone or perhaps an internet cafe uh, c- could have a voice, and she could connect to others and, and truly speak for herself. And today, we have women reporting from the ground and speaking out from over 140 countries. It's amazing, and what we've done is we've created, ended up landed on a hybrid where we've linked our print magazine in a very innovative way with our global newswire. So we're sourcing stories, we're truly listening to women at the grassroots and publishing them, and in turn our readers, when they're inspired by a story, can come back on and connect directly to the women themselves. So it's been a very, I started, as I said, quite shy. I grew up in Wisconsin, rural Wisconsin, and I was homeschooled. I grew up, uh, the, my learnings, my teachers were really the, the forests and the, the fields and the streams. I played house, my house was always this tree with my Minnie Mouse phone in the crook of uh, the branches and my Fisher-Price stove in the crook of another branches. But when I was put into public school about fifth grade, it was very uh, painful for me. It was a shock, the, the way that information was taught. And I, I, I doubted myself. I started to doubt my own voice, and I stuffed it inside. And I became so shy that it was hard for me even to raise my hand to, to go to the bathroom. And it was easier for me just to, to wet my pants than, than to, to ask to go, then I uh, could not get up the courage to correct people who were mispronouncing my name. It took me until high school till I finally broke through that, and you can imagine the surprise and shock of my class that had gone through with me for six years in, uh, in uh, rural Wisconsin to discover that that was not really my real name. <laughs> But growing up, I I found myself feeling an emptiness inside. At high school age, I started reading The New York Times, I started reading The Economist, but I wasn't hearing from the women teachers I wanted to learn from as a woman, so I decided I needed to get out in the world, and at 19, I took off to go to the Amazon. (laughs) I I worked uh, full-time, saved money, and, 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 and went. I ended up in Ecuador working with indigenous communities, especially indigenous women who were struggling to reclaim their native lands in the face of multinational oil contamination. At that time, four times Exxon Valdez had been spilled on their traditional lands. Their children were dying of skin cancer. They were dying of stomach cancer. And they asked me to be their messenger. They, They told me that, please, Sina take our stories back to the United States, the largest oil-consuming country. That's where we can have influence. And at that time, I, I started to awake to the power that being a journalist, a messenger, could be, and how much they wanted that. From there, I ended up going to Burma and working uh, undercover under the Burmese dictatorship secretly, and then uh, in Thailand working with the refugees, mostly women refugees who had fled the ethnic cleansing, which is still going on to this day, under the hands of one of the most brutal dictatorships in the world. That was when my life changed and I had the vision for World Pulse as I interviewed these women, who had endured the absolute unthinkable, who had had many cases, their villages bombed, their animals tortured, their children even tortured in front of them, and uh, the military army known as a school for rape, many of them had been very seriously violated, they were so courageous, and all I could do was be in awe as I held the microphone in front of them, and trembling, really, with the determination that they had, this flame, I often call it a flame of determination I see in eyes of women, to, to bring about democracy, this yearning, the vows that they had, the visions, the solutions, the plans that they were creating. And I remember waking up one morning in Thailand, in a very one of those hot, hot mornings where you're already totally drenched in sweat, and I knew I was going to go and do more interviews, and I just thought, what, what is their future? Because so many of those women and girls were being trafficked into the underground brothels where the, the uh, rate of AIDS infection in some were 80% literal death traps. But I had a vision then of a media source that could truly broadcast the wisdom of these women. I felt like this really is gold. What if we can show the world that they are poets, that they are innovative, that they are organizers, uh, educators, caregivers, and just tremendous leaders for the world? And there's this movement, I could feel women's leadership, not just here, but in the Amazon and all over, starting to rise. And uh, I felt like it needed to happen. But, I was 23 years old at that time and I was really shy and also had no publishing experience whatsoever and I had no resources, I couldn't even go to my family for a hundred dollars. So I, I, I doubted myself again and I really, really held it inside I, uh, for about five years until I was 28 years old when I finally uh, took the leap. but. It took a couple of things. One, it took the voices of those women that kept it wouldn't leave me alone. I would continue to wake up in bed in the middle of the night and say, oh, where is this? It needs to happen. And then I started looking at the data and just understanding how absolutely staggering the imbalance is. And I had felt it, but I started to realize it. For example, realizing that uh, in the media, in global news stories, women are only the center of stories about 10% of the time. Women are only 1% of world editors. This in the media which really defines what we feel is possible in the world. Women do two-thirds of the world's work, yet make 10% of the world's income and own 1% of the world's financial assets. It's really uh, quite staggering. So I, I, I was pushed into it, and I started the uh, building a team, creating a magazine, making networks with journalists around the world, fundraising. I raised my first four hundred thousand dollars from 15 and one hundred dollar checks. So it took a, took a long time; took a couple of years to do that. <laughs> And makes me proud to say World Pulse really is born from the grassroots, grassroots to grassroots. Absolutely. So, um as we put the magazine out, well, the reaction that went out from our audience helped define our course, our next course, and really shift our, our, our business strategy, essentially. But we were getting, uh, we were up on newsstands across the U.S. and Canada. We started getting waves of interest, deluged, really hit up from two sides. One side was uh, mostly women from North America who had had the print magazine passing it among friends and saying, oh, my God, I hadn't, hadn't heard about of the situation in Iraq from these Iraqi women leaders. I didn't realize the Holocaust that was happening in the Congo or that there were solutions for the peace plan for the drug war coming out of women leaders from the United States. And they were calling us, ringing our phone off the hook, because they wanted to do more. They wanted to do more than just write a check. They really, really wanted to connect. They wanted to travel there, they wanted to volunteer, they wanted to to donate their resources. On the other side, we were getting emails from very remote places where you wouldn't think that there would actually be Internet access from the heart of the jungles of Colombia and and, uh, rural parts of Africa, many, many small projects, small... um, small education or healthcare clinics, women there saying, please cover us, we, we want uh, the visibility. But we did not have the ability to cover all of these stories. And that's when we started to conceive of Pulsewire. As we looked out, there were three things that really reinforced our decision to go for it strategically. And I call these three unstoppable trends that we are now facing in our world today. And the first unstoppable trend is the rise of women's leadership. It is undeniable, we're seeing it around us from political leadership, but across all sectors, business, government, uh, and religion. You see Ellen Johnson Sirleaf in Liberia, you see Michelle Bachelet in Chile, you see in Rwanda uh, women now having over 50% in the parliament, which is, uh, is really incredible. The US, yes, <laughs> the first country the very first country in the U.S., we are lagging a bit behind at 69th in the world for political leadership, so we do have some some work to do. Then, the second unstoppable trend is the communication revolution that is galloping across especially the developing world, so it actually is literally feasible for women to have more access than ever before to speak to the world. We're seeing even in remote and impoverished villages from Iran to South Africa, women are using their laptops, uh, cyber cafes, and cell phones to communicate market information, to um, build influential movements, to report on violent crimes, and even accessing information such as healthcare. We're also seeing what I think is very exciting the consensus that empowering and investing, in educating women and girls is the fastest way to solve global problems. We have, we have uh, it's really coming up extremely strong right now. I mean, when you have the Pentagon of the United States using a benchmark for the security of a region of how many girls' schools are there, we know that, that things are changing. When we see the IMF and we see the World Bank b- putting out big reports about about this, Many of you may have recently seen Oprah, all of Oprah's specials that are happening, big waves, and Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times with his new book Half the Sky is also generating quite a bit of interest. And you have the Dalai Lama that just recently proclaimed a few weeks ago in uh, Vancouver that Western women will save the world. Very interesting. (laughs) Businesses are starting to wake up because they're realizing that, that women do control 85% of consumer spending in North America, so controlling the, the, the market potential, and the economist also saying, forget China, forget technology, it is women who are driving the global economy. The problem is, this is all wonderful, all these trends, and the perfect time for doing something like pulse wire. But the problem is, is that this is a lot of, of, of uh, rhetoric in that it's not truly translating yet. We're still, the resources getting to women's groups are still a trickle, and there are huge barriers because so many of these women's groups and programs are extremely isolated, and I think one of the biggest barriers is, is our own internalized oppression of our own voice holding us back. When you have experienced so much, especially physical abuse, one in three women have experienced violence or rape in some form, then it's really hard to believe in your own self. And when we don't recognize our own power, that is the biggest thing that's holding us back, is not seeing these models. As we began to build Pulsewire, I thought, oh, this is great, we'll build this, This will empower women around the world. And people thought we were, cr- we were crazy, or at least that it was such a big idea, it wouldn't <laughs> feasibly happen. And uh, I, I have to give kudos to our incredible team who really kept up in the, um, in the face of such incredible criticism, or not criticism, but skepticism, I would say. And um, I didn't realize either the extent in which I would become empowered through this process. I thought it would empower all these other women, but it really happened for me in this journey. (laughs) It will happen for you, and it it is happening for you in many cases. Soon after beta testing the site, I met a woman who changed my life and really helped us also think strategically about how we could scale and and, uh, how Web 2.0 could be an empowering tool for women. My editors called me over and they said, oh, Yancina, there's a, a, a text, a cell phone message that's just come on, and it's from rural Kenya. It said, hello, hello, is anybody there? Please tell me I'm not lost which is now not unusual for so many that are just coming online for the first time. It's scary when they're not used to the Facebooking, and it's it's a very new thing. So we did what we do, which is welcome her, say, you know, tell us your story, talk to us, we're here, and she literally poured out of her that she was 43 years old, she was HIV-AIDS positive, living in a very impoverished area, and had five children, she was almost dead two years ago, and uh, now ha- she was a six-foot-tall Amazon woman, but had, uh, was weighing 90 pounds at that time. But now she was coming online, she had access to antiretrovirals, and she had this burning fire to live. And so she wanted to help all the women of her community, and she was taking on caregiving for over 17 women who were also dying of AIDS, and she wanted to know how could she access information, how could she become a better leader. Well. Leah's stories um, became like poetry, and like another Emily Dickinson of our time, I think. She made so many connections on our site that she began to be invited to travel to Mexico and travel to Canada, speak as a rural woman, and AIDS conferences, and her, her visions and solutions. She began to, um, got training to be an, a, a full-blown caregiver in her community for AIDS. She got donated a laptop and began to report on the ground as the election violence happened all around her, the gunfire, children seeking refuge in her home because their families were burned. It was a terrible, terrible time, but we heard about that first from her, her, her words and the other women of Kenya. And then on top of it, Um, she began to give us technical advice and say, please consider sending uh, text messages to my cell phone so that myself or other women know there's a message and we can go to the cyber cafe. Know it's time to go to the cyber cafe because so often we have to walk 30 kilometers or more to get there. Thank you for considering this request on behalf of millions. And I began to realize that Leia had bigger visions for Pulsewire than even I did. <laughs> and, she, and she would say, I have big dreams. I see that Pulsewire will be the place where the presidents will come to t- listen to the women and children and test their security and insecurity. And she would Skype me late at night. She learned how to Skype, of course. She now has 340 Skype contacts, much more than I do. And I said, and she would say, see, I was up late working, and say, go to bed, Yensina, zoom off to bed, you must rest. Don't worry, I have the pulse wire flame. I'll carry it for you. <laughs> but I can't tell you the relief to feel that when um, she hears a woman who was going through more funerals in her week than I had in my life, but she was carrying this, and it was such an incredible relief. Like Leia, we saw that it's reaching the, that woman who's very motivated woman leader of a community that is the voice, the light for that community that can spread. And so our strategy really is to reach these women. Now we have women from over 140 countries. It's like I go on, I drink my morning coffee with Pulsewire and I read it before I go to bed at night, and it is, it's like a sanctuary. I just, I love it. But it's like having the electromagnetic field of women's thoughts and minds like cranked up the volume, you know, just so amped up. And we hear incredible stories, like uh, Sunita from Nepal, from um, doing microfinance in a village of 500, who says, this is a revolution for me. Yesterday, my neighbors didn't want to hear from me. Now the world is waiting for my voice and starting to organize with women in Nepal through pockets of the country that she saw on our site and organizing locally to mobilize for youth which is now beginning to be called Web 3.0, using the web to create local, generate local community. Life-changing friendships like I had. A group called the Friendship Club, started by another woman in Africa, teaching illiterate women how to read and write by matching them up with pen pals in the United States. She started with 20 women, now it's spread to 200 in over four four, um, villages, and now she wants to spread it to over four countries. And the women she's matching with from Europe and North America are flying there and meeting with these women and embracing and being inducted into the, the tribes and, uh, and starting mobile medical clinics and making films, it's amazing. Breaking news from the Sudan, the woman who was flogged for, for going to be flogged for wearing pants, that story came out first on our site. And men uh, men are coming on and reporting the infant rape that's happening in their villages and what can they do to stop it, and networking with other men. I think the most important part that we're seeing is the sense of that I am not alone, and there's a community of women there that can, act, can support me, whether I'm writing about the female genital mutilation that happened to me or standing in line for water at 4.30 every single morning. Um, and it's an incredible strength What does this mean for the environment? It's massive that women are hit hardest by environmental degradation. It's 40 billion hours that uh, women are spending walking for water to get clean water. Imagine if that was freed up for income generating and caring for children. Um, There's there's little programs that are starting like the barefoot solar engineers where women who are illiterate are being taught to be solar engineers within six months, and as they electrify their villages, their rise in income status, uh, the development that it brings to the village lights for the school children to read. This program has electrified over 350 villages across India, Afghanistan, and Africa. So... As women awaken to each other's power and to our power, we are literally awakening legions of these new guardians, of these ambassadors for the earth. And when women feel confident, feel free from the shame of rape, they're going to be freed up to stop the rape of the earth. They will be our whistleblowers. They will be our guardians. And what can we do? What can we do? We need a massive infusion of resources. We need to build the communications infrastructure first so we can hear where the resources need to go. And the education of women is key, but not just mathematics, not just arithmetic. I'm talking about the education, the confidence of inner power and leadership. And once you connect women, they are going to teach each other that. So I invite uh, us to look around us and make sure that we do not leave women out. Uh, l- look for spaces for them to lead the way. They are our greatest advisors now. Make sure your projects include the women. And um, you can sign up for our network. We do have a booth at, um, in the community area. You can sign up to get the magazine, and sign up, connect with women immediately. And we also feature some of the best ways and projects that you can get behind. And, you know, the future is a beautiful thing when we see this unleashed. Women's voices will come out of the shadows, and they will drive their own development and destinies. Global decision-makers will no longer be able to ignore us and we will become a united and political economic force that will hold corporations accountable, overturn dictatorships, improve the lives of men and boys, and create a culture shift of a life that is valued over destruction. So I hear it now, I hear it storming the airwaves, ringing in the halls of Congress, and I speak from experience that this is not about charity, this is women that are empowering us and we are in a, the brink of an eruption of a volcano that will shift the world and empower us all. Thank you.